0: Well, we're going to read now from God's Word, so please take your Bible and turn to page 1131, where you should find Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them.
1: The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, on page 1208, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood
2: Why don't I lead us in prayer? Let's pray together. Earlier on in Hebrews, the writer says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great privilege we have of an open Bible, and being able to look at the Bible together this morning, and hearing your voice. And please would you guard us from hardening our hearts. Please grant us... Uh, sensitive, teachable hearts, that our minds and lives might be transformed by your word as your spirit works in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have read the program card, then you'll know this is the first of two talks on conscience, Now, it may be that some of us haven't really thought about our consciences very much at all. Perhaps our conscience operates somewhat in the background, rather like an app on your phone, constantly updating itself, but you are largely unaware of it. In which case, my aim for these two talks is that we take our conscience off the shelf, dust it down, and bring it back into daily life. After all, we all have a conscience. Our conscience exerts a moral force inside us, like a, like a referee in a football match. It gives us a sense of what is right and wrong. It's our conscience that makes us aware that this particular thing over here is wrong, or that that particular thing over here, over there, is right. It makes us feel bad if we do wrong things, It makes us feel at peace when we do what we think is the right thing. Rather like an umpire in a cricket match, it tells us, doesn't it, internally when it is we've overstepped the line. We can appeal to our consciences in order to know whether something is right or whether it is wrong. So we all have a conscience, and we all listen to our conscience. Perhaps there's a, a job which we're thinking of applying for. Or a relationship that's developing. I feel really good about it. It feels like the right thing to do. I have a sense of peace about it. That is my conscience. Or I feel uneasy about it. And it doesn't feel right. That is the voice of conscience. And of course it's a voice, isn't it, which never goes away. It can be rather annoying. Sometimes I'd rather not hear that little voice inside me ringing alarm bells. And then when we do something, of course, that our conscience disagrees with and tells us is wrong, actually it can make our lives profoundly miserable. We feel guilty, fearful, uncertain. Indeed, a guilty conscience led Judas Iscariot to commit suicide, having betrayed the Lord Jesus. Which raises the question, is conscience a friend or is it a foe? Friend or foe? Well, today we're going to think about both the joy of a cleansed conscience, as well beforehand as the problem of a guilty conscience... And then in the second talk of the series, which I apologize, you're going to have to wait until after Easter for the second talk in the series. But in the second talk in the series, we're going to be thinking about training our consciences and to what extent or not we should listen to our consciences. And there's an outline, as usual, on the back of the service sheet, which I hope we're going to find useful. First of all, the suppressed conscience And please turn back to that reading we had from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, page 1131, verses 18 to 32. Now, if you're familiar with Romans, then you will know that the first three chapters of the letter, the Apostle Paul gives us God's diagnosis, if you like, for what is wrong with the world. And why it is that everyone, everyone without exception, faces the judgment of God. He's leading up to chapter 3, verse 23, where he's going to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At which point, I guess our natural tendency is is to push back and say, but surely not, not everyone. To which Paul says, yes, everyone. And Romans 1, 18 to 32 shows us why. And it is because we naturally suppress the truth about God, and so rather than worshiping the God who made us, the God who is God, we worship other things instead. Have a look at Romans 1:18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now notice, Willie, verses 19 and 20, that everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows from creation that God exists. In other words, we look at the world, we look at the natural uh, beauty of the world, the natural order of the world, Uh, The scientist, of course, looks at the world through uh, his or her microscope. The rest of us, the kind of bigger picture of the world. And we instinctively know there is a creator. Or, as we might say, that is something we all know deeply within our consciences. Before I became a Christian, I knew in my conscience that God existed. And yet, verse 18... We all suppress that truth. And so, verses 19 to 23 instead of honoring and worshipping God, we worship created things. In the ancient world, as in so many cultures today, uh, statues and idols, statues of gods. In 21st century Britain, the equally powerful gods of wealth and leisure and success, relationships and happiness and so on. But then look on to verse 32. Because you see, not only do we suppress what our consciences tell us about the existence of God, we also suppress what they tell us about the judgments, verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's very striking, isn't it? Paul is saying we all know not only that God exists, but, verse 32, We all know there will be a judgment. There will be a day of accountability. We know that in our conscience, and yet we ignore it, and we continue to live as if there won't be. So putting together Romans 1, 18-32, what are the two things everyone knows deeply in their consciences? There is a God, and there will be a day of judgment. And yet, what do we naturally do to that voice of conscience? We suppress it. And over time, the voice of conscience gets quieter and quieter and quieter and easier to ignore. There's a car that's parked outside our house often, or if not literally outside our house, then outside the houses around about us, and it has a faulty alarm. So, you know, the... The car alarm, irritatingly, goes off at completely random moments. Well, the first time that happens, I kind of rush to the front door, open the front door, fully expecting to you know, confront uh, the burglar, uh, ha- sort of guilty you know, in the act. Now, it was, of course, a false alarm. I don't know, actually, what I'd have done if the burglar really had been there, and I had caught the burglar in the act, but that's... Uh, that's something perhaps to speculate on. But nonetheless, it was, it was a false alarm. And over time, so as over the last year or so, I've learned to ignore the alarm. Um, and I guess now it, I, it, it probably still goes off. I hear it occasionally. But most of the time, I barely notice it. Similar to the way in which we treat our conscience. Not that our conscience sounds false alarms when it speaks to us about the existence of God and the judgment to come but we get used to ignoring the alarm bells of our conscience and the more we ignore our conscience the better we get at ignoring our conscience such that even when we do hear our conscience actually we don't really give it the attention it needs the suppressed conscience. Let's think secondly about the unreliable conscience and keep a finger or your talk outline in Romans and turn on to the next book of the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Page 1151, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, some of us may remember this chapter from when we looked at 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago when it was our book of the year. Uh, The issue in chapters 8 to 10 is the issue of food sacrificed to idols. Most of the meat, you wouldn't have gone along to Tesco's or Sainsbury's to buy your your meat for a barbecue or whatever it was. You'd have had to go to the the temple. Most of the meat that was for sale in Corinth would have been sacrificed to a pagan god in the temple beforehand. I guess it's it's not really an equivalent, but I guess, you know, buying halal meat might kind of begin to give us a sense of what was going on. And there are some Christians in Corinth and their consciences are saying to them, you shouldn't eat this meat because it's been sacrificed, first of all, all to an idol. It's been sacrificed to a pagan god. In other words, they believe uh, deeply in their consciences that they shouldn't eat it. Verse 7. Some, through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They feel it deeply. It's something they are sensitive about. It's something their conscience speaks to them about. And yet, and this is the key thing to grasp, they are wrong. Their conscience is wrong. Because idol gods don't have any real existence. They are simply blocks of stone or wood. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. Paul says idols don't exist. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may may be uh, so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. The Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Idols don't exist. They are pretend gods. The fact that that food has been sacrificed to an idol, why, it's just meaningless. Now we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the second talk. Because Paul will say there are times when you should listen to your conscience, even though it is wrong. But for now, simply notice that our conscience can be wrong. It is not a reliable guide. The Old Testament puts it like this. I put some references there on the outline, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Indeed, God says that sometimes a whole culture will distort its sort of corporate culture, its, its corporate conscience, its collective conscience, so that people will, in the words of Isaiah 5, verse 20, call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. In other words, conscience can become so so twisted, so distorted that it 's not just inaccurate, it is completely reversed. I wonder who remembers the Disney character Pinocchio and the little figure of Jiminy Cricket, who is pinocchio 's conscience, and the song that he sings to Pinocchio. With the title, Give a Little Whistle. I'm going to spare you the song, don't worry about that. But uh, the point is simply that whenever Pinocchio is unsure and uncertain about what he should do, what's right, what's wrong, then the idea is he needs needs a whistle to Jiminy Cricket, who will come along and advise him. And the punchline for the song has the famous phrase Always let your conscience be your guide. Always let your conscience be your guide. Really? Always? Is what I think is right always right? Is what I regard as wrong always wrong? And what about when my conscience differs from your conscience? If I think it's right and you think it's wrong? Well, have a think about these words from one of the confessions that we say in church as we confess our sin. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for all our misdoings. The memory of them is grievous to us. The burden of them is intolerable. Really? The memory, grievous? The burden, intolerable? Surely, for most of us, most of the time, actually, we don't think of our sin like that. We don't take our sin that seriously. In short, you see, our consciences are unreliable guides. Some of us, I guess, have overly sensitive consciences. Others, the opposite. Just as I may feel physically healthy, when in fact I'm suffering from the early stages of some terrible degenerative and progressive disease... And I may feel very ill when I'm suffering from a cold, especially if it's the man-cold variety. In both cases, you see, how I actually feel in the moment within myself is an unreliable guide to the true state of my health. In the same way, in my conscience, I may feel that something is okay when it's not, and I may sometimes feel something is not okay when, in fact, it is. And yet, and perhaps this is really the thing for us to to think about and dwell on, and yet, when it comes to making choices and decisions and setting priorities in life, why the language our culture shouts at us is that you should go where your conscience leads you. Isn't that what our world says to us all the time? Just go where your conscience leads you. Do what is right for you, as if our conscience is reliable. There's even the Christian version, isn't there, of that kind of thinking go where your conscience leads you? It's, well, we speak about feeling at peace about something. I already feel at peace about this job, I already feel at peace about this relationship as if our conscience is always right. As if whether I feel at peace about something or not is the kind of definitive guide as to whether it's the right course of action or the wrong course of action. But no, our consciences are unreliable. We suppress our consciences and they are unreliable. Thirdly, let's think about the guilty conscience. Turn back to Romans and Romans chapter 2, page 1132. Now, we said earlier the first three chapters of Romans are all heading to chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is going to get everyone to the point where where they despair of themselves, where they see that they have suppressed the truth about God and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. But you say, how is that going to happen? I mean, if you've got a Bible, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, how it's going to happen? Because the Bible tells us. But what if you don't have a Bible? Well, the answer is, you have a conscience. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Notice everyone has what Paul says and describes in verse 15 as a law written in their hearts, the law of conscience. In other words, you don't need a Bible to know um, that rape or murder or kidnapping or wrong, uh, are wrong because you see in everyone there remains a sense of right and wrong it's part of the residue of God's image we began our service this morning thinking about the fact that we are made in God's image and it's part of the, the residue of God's image that is in each one of us which means that even though we naturally suppress our conscience and even though our conscience is an unreliable guide and gets distorted and hardened Nonetheless, you and I, each one of us, we all know, don't we, what it means to have a guilty conscience, both before other people, before ourselves, and before God. And we all know, I take it, what the power of a guilty conscience feels like. One of the news stories a couple of weeks ago was Uh, focused on John Ford, a private investigator who confessed to targeting senior members of the Labour government between 1997 and 2010. He stole their bank details, he hacked into their mobile phones, he intercepted their posts. Now why is it that eight years later he decided to go public and confess? Well, he explained. He had a guilty conscience. He couldn't live with his conscience. A guilty conscience is a terrible thing. There are things in my life, as there no doubt will be things in yours, of which I'm deeply ashamed. Whether they be things you and I have done or failed to do or said or failed to say, things we've read, things we've watched, things we've enjoyed, things we've thought. And my conscience, as it were, sits on my shoulder and says to me, that was wrong, that was terrible, that was wicked, that was impure, that was uncaring, it was lazy, it was neglectful. And it then says to me, and you can't blame anyone else, and you can't blame your circumstances, because actually it was your fault, and you are entirely to blame. You are guilty. And that is why we need to know, finally, how we can have a cleansed conscience. Because, you see, the subjective guilt that we feel in our conscience points to a far deeper and far bigger reality, which is the objective guilt with which we uh, stand before God on the judgment day. In other words, it's not just that our our consciences make us feel guilty, It is that we really are guilty before a holy God. So turn finally, will you, to Hebrews uh, chapter 9 again, to that second reading which we had, Hebrews chapter 9, on page 1209. Now, there are three references to conscience in Hebrews 9 and 10, so I'd love us all to take some homework away, and I'd love us all, perhaps later on today or this evening, tomorrow morning to read through Hebrews 9 and 10, the whole of Hebrews 9 and 10. We haven't got time to do that now, but I'd love us to go away and do that. But here are the highlights. Firstly, chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, the Old Testament temple with its priests and sacrifices couldn't cleanse the conscience, chapter 9, verse 9. According to this arrangement, speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't perfect. The, the word means to qualify, a sense of being qualified to stand in the presence of God, dirty, sinful consciences to stand before God. They didn't deal with the problem of our guilt before God. It's why, of course, they had to be repeated year after year after year. Second, chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, Jesus has died to deal with our guilt before a holy God and cleanse our consciences. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice, will you, Jesus' death was a once-for-all death, not a once-for-all-people death, in other words, so that everyone, regardless of whether or not they trust in him, is forgiven. No, not a once-for-all-people death, but a once-for-all-time sacrifice, once-for-all, which never needs to be repeated. And the result, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The writer is saying, however many good works we have to our name, they don't have the power to remove our guilt before God. But Jesus bore the penalty for our sin in his body. He bore the guilt that is ours. And therefore, as we trust in Jesus As we trust in his death on the cross, our sins are forgiven, our guilt is removed, and our conscience is cleansed. Third, the result is a wonderful confidence. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Let me read them. For he who promised is faithful. Notice, will you, verse 19, if we are trusting in the death of Jesus, we have been brought into the presence of God forever. It's not something that just happens in church, but we live every moment of every day in the presence of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If we are trusting in Jesus every moment of every day in the presence of God. Notice verse 20, the temple curtain, the visual aid, the separation between us and God, if we are trusting in Jesus, has been removed. Notice verse 21, Jesus is our great high priest. Indeed, Jesus is the only priest the New Testament ever speaks about. Church leaders aren't priests. Church leaders shouldn't be called priests, because it's only Jesus who through his death brings us into the presence of God. And so, verse 22, the writer says, draw near with full assurance, a clean heart, and a clean conscience. Now, it may well be that there are some here uh, this morning, and I guess in a crowd like this there are bound to be uh, some here this morning, and actually you don't know what it is to have a clean conscience. You long to, but actually you don't. And the glorious news is that you can by trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. And if you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Jesus or if this is all completely new to you, then uh, do talk to a, to a friend here or come talk to me afterwards about how you can do that. But what about those of us who are following Jesus already? Hebrews was written, after all, to Christians. It's the Christians that the writer says, verse 19, draw near. By which he means draw near not just as a one-off thing, but actually draw near and carry on drawing near again and again, day after day. What do you say? Hang on a moment. Hasn't Jesus brought us into the presence of God once for all by Jesus' death on the cross? Well, yes, he has. So what's the writer saying in Verse 19. But what he's saying is that we should consciously preach the achievements of Jesus' death on the cross to our hearts and consciences so that we enjoy that access to God in the experience of our lives every day. Perhaps when the devil points his finger at us and stirs up memories of thoughts and things that we've done in the past which are wrong, which we know are wrong, at which point you say if we're trusting Jesus Christ, we can reply and say with absolute confidence and boldness, I am a forgiven person. I no longer stand before God as a guilty, as a guilty person. My conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In his excellent book on conscience, Christ, Christopher Ashe writes about a Christian who was visited by his pastor as he lay dying in hospital and his pastor asked him is there anything you need to confess to god before you die he thought and he replied no there is nothing i've done many wrong things i've said all sorts of bad things i've done even more evil things But you know i have nothing to confess I've confessed my sin to God daily for many years now and repented of every known sin. And I've made a habit of trusting each day in the blood of Jesus shed for my sin. So thanks for asking, but no, there is nothing. I'm ready to die. In fact, I've been ready to die for many years now, thank God, ever since I put my trust in Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? The joy, the joy, the assurance of a cleansed conscience. Let's spend a few moments in quiet and then I shall lead us in prayer. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you very much for the way in which your word uh, helps us to understand ourselves, and we praise you as we uh, look at our own consciences, which we so easily suppress, which we know are unreliable, which we know are guilty. We praise you for the death of the Lord Jesus, once for all time such that those who trust in him might have our sin washed away, forgiven, our consciences cleansed. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for a deep and real rejoicing and confidence each day, uh, conscious of who we are, rejoicing in a cleansed conscience. And rejoicing, too, in that future day, when we can stand before you as forgiven people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.